0: I am uh, very excited to be back here with you guys. Um, yeah, thank you. It's always it's always a privilege to to come down here, and I come with just some great reports of all that God is doing um, up the Five Freeway at Compass Bible Church, Tustin. Uh, God has been so kind to our church. Our, our building is going. Very well. Right now, we are under construction, and in the next maybe couple of months, we're going to be moved in uh, to our permanent home, which we are really uh, super excited about um, as our church family. I know as you guys have been praying, uh, looking at you know Instagram posts, things like that. I know that you uh, care and, and are excited about those things too. But it's always fun uh, to come down here and do a little bit of cross compass. Preaching. Uh, You know, you send guys up to us sometimes and we'll send some down to you. And it's fun to do that. And every time I do come down uh, to Compass AV, um, I'm always just met with this realization and this, this reality that I have, having grown up here, I just know less and less people every time I show up here. The percentage of people that I knew when I used to come here and the percentage of people in this room that I know that I know now are two very different percentages, which I think is a great thing, that's a good thing. That means the church is is growing and so many of you maybe don't know me. And so if I was to introduce myself, maybe let you know a little bit more about me, one of the things that I might mention um, is that I'm not a pet person at all. I'm not a pet person, I never have been. Um, I don't plan to ever be, Um, I don't really care for dogs, I don't really care for cats, I'm not a dog or a cat person. Um, But if you invite me over to your house, and uh, you, you you know, got a dog or something like that, I will be cordial with your pets. I will act like I like them. I'll address them by their first name. I'll even pet them if you really want me to. But frankly, I don't really care that much um, about pets. And people are always so offended by that. And maybe I've just offended you in the first 30 seconds of the sermon (laughs) and you've checked out. Um, Sorry about that. Um, But, you know, people always tell me like, oh man, but you just have never found the right dog. Or maybe, you know what, maybe you're one of those cat people. You might love cats. If you just tried it, if you just had one, if you found the perfect man's best friend or cat or whatever the case may be, you might actually like pets. And I'm telling you, I I don't think those are out there for me, so you can keep trying, um, but I don't know that those um, exist. However, I do think if you invited me over to your house and you said, come meet my pet tiger, I I probably would be very intrigued in a a situation like that. I don't know if you guys have followed these exotic pet people. You read these stories, you watch these movies or documentaries about these exotic pet people, those people are crazy. I mean, they they really are. I was reading about this story um, of this guy in Canada um, who who loved Siberian tigers. And and so he had this uh, Siberian tiger, little exhibit there, little mini zoo in his backyard. And uh, he would bring, you know, birthday parties and kids uh, in all the time. And so one time, uh, I think it was back in 2004, he had a a birthday party for some kids and this 10-year-old boy got attacked by this tiger and uh, he actually survived it from what I hear from this story that he's, he's actually still alive. He's on like a feeding tube for the rest of his life. Um, but this caused some controversy in, uh, in Canada. And so it went all the way uh, into the government. They started to, after the story broke, they started to crack down on the exotic pet laws. And uh, so what they did is they instituted this law that said it is now illegal in Canada to have exotic pets. And uh, this guy, Norman uh, Bualda, he was pretty upset about that. And so what he did is he took... Um, a lawyer friend of his found a loophole in the law. Went all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court to fight for his tigers. And apparently, because of the loophole, he was able to keep five of these uh, these 650-pound Siberian tigers. And I think you know exactly where the story is going. So he's got his five tigers. He's going into his uh, one of his pet, you know, his pet tigers cage to clean the cage out. And uh, he never came out. He got eaten by one of his own pets, one of his own tigers. And uh, this guy, was he was such an advocate for exotic pets. Uh, he was one of the chairman of the Canadian Exotic Animal Ownership Association. So this was his life mission, was to be able to legalize uh, having big cats uh, like, like tigers or lions um, as pets. And ultimately, it cost him his life. His goal was try to domesticate these wild animals animals, to domesticate something is to bring something that is wild and to bring it to now live in close proximity uh, with human beings. When you do that with something like a dog, it's okay, the dangers are pretty low. When you do that with an animal like a 650-pound tiger, the danger goes that much higher. And uh, my fear is that in good churches like ours, there is a domestication that can take place if we're not very careful about it. And ultimately, the domestication that can take place in good churches like ours are much more dangerous than a a tiger, a 650-pound Siberian tiger. But I think oftentimes in churches like ours, there can be a temptation to domesticate God. And not necessarily what I'm talking about from the pulpit here or from the theology classrooms over in Compass Bible Institute, but a domestication of God where we view God as less then he really is. And that shows up in the way that we live. That shows up in the way that we think and the way that we talk. And that could be a very dangerous thing when we domesticate uh, some, someone as powerful as God. We need to make sure that we avoid that. And uh, let me be clear, like domestication of God is not taking place from a pulpit like this or from the CBI classrooms, but it takes place after. It takes place after you hear a good theology lesson, a good maybe lecture in a classroom about, uh, about who God is. But then go home and and live like those truths are not really true. What are you taking with the good theology that you hear on a Sunday morning? What are you taking uh, with the good theology that you learn in a Compass Bible Institute classroom? Is it just head knowledge? Is it just good things to fill your brain with of this is who God is and I know more maybe than the person sitting next to me? Or does it actually take place? Does it actually um, uh, result in life change and, and application, that good theology, what are you actually doing with it? Does it affect your marriage? Does it affect your relationships? Does it affect your heart for the lost? Good theology should result in life application. Maybe you've heard the phrase good theology should result in doxology. The idea of doxology is the idea of worship. We as, as, as image bearers of God are created to worship God. And so therefore, when we know more about God, when we have good theology and we understand who he is, it should show up in our life. So if you believe that God is holy, you will live like God is holy. You will live a holy life. If you believe God is love, then you will love your neighbor. If you believe God is sovereign, then you won't be fearful and and riddled with anxiety. If you believe these things about God, it should show up in our lives. And there's a temptation in churches like ours, good churches to hear good theology like ours, to just walk away unchanged to live like these truths are not actually true, to just go to church, to go to your home fellowship group, to show up to CBI and to just disengage even your mind from the truths that you're learning to what you're doing in your everyday life and mindlessly start going through the motions where church is just another box to check. God is just another idea and conversation that I have but ultimately not the one that I worship. And so uh, today, this morning, I'd like for us to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter five, which I believe will be very helpful for us to make sure that we are not going through the motions, to make sure that we're not viewing God as any less than he has revealed himself in his word. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verses one to seven will be our text this morning, as we make sure that we treat God as God. We properly understand who he is, and then we go out, and properly obey him and fear him as a result. If you're here, I hope that you want to have a higher view of God, and I hope that you want to put his word into practice. And so I believe that Ecclesiastes five will help us in that endeavor. Ecclesiastes chapter five. Let's read, starting in verse one down to verse seven. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse one. Let's read it together. The preacher says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. For when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. Free is no pleasure in fools, but you should pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake, for why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one whom you must fear. If you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, you know it is a search meaning. He's really trying to answer this question. The the preacher, the author of the uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, is trying to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? What am I living for? And so all throughout the first few chapters, and we see it later on in the book as well, you see this concept. If you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, you probably know the word vanity. You probably have some understanding of what that means. Vanity is this idea of breath, this idea of a vapor, this idea of worthlessness, meaninglessness. And so he's been trying to find a search for meaning in this life. And really his thesis is that without God, there's no meaning in life at all. He says, all is vanity. He starts off in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ultimately, without God, life is meaningless. However, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he does a little sidebar here. And he says, but when you add God into the equation, that's where there is meaning. The vanity is, is wiped away, and now there's meaningfulness in what life is all about. And so I love chapter five. It really reintroduces God into the equation and says that there is meaningfulness in life. Really what he does is he tries to make sure that you think about God, making sure that you understand your relationship to him as his creature because he is the creator, asking the question of who is God and who are we? And the answer that I, te- that I believe our text communicates with us this morning is that we ought to have a proper relationship to that God. Not treating him as a, just a peer, as a buddy, as a friend, but treating him as the holy, sovereign, powerful God of the universe. Treating him with that high view. And what he does here is he corrects this person that's just kind of going through the motions. That's just treating God as a buddy, treating God as a friend, treating God as less than he truly, really is. And it'd be good for us this morning to make sure that we look into our lives to make sure that that's not going on in our lives as well. So I'd love for you guys to write it down this way for point number one. Inspect your life for a low view of God. Inspect your life for a low view of God. That's really what this text is all about. To make sure that you do not have a low view of God. To make sure that you properly understand who he is and you live your life as though God is God. It is the captain of your life, the Lord of your life, if you will. In our culture today, relationship to God is, is, is a very lax relationship. People, it's just, he's the man upstairs. He's my buddy. He, he's just a spiritual therapist to me. He, he, he's just God. He's just a piece of the pie of my life. Where this text says, no, 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 he's not. He is the God of the universe. Confronts this low view of him. We'll get to the solution later of how how do we make sure that we have a high view of God. He starts off in verse one to talk about the solution. He ends verse seven with the solution. But the middle of this text, the second half of verse one, all the way down to the first half of verse seven, really explains to us what it looks like to have this going through the motions type of Christianity, this low view of God, this lax view of God. What does it look like? He's got some symptoms to introspectively look into our lives to make sure we're not doing it. Look back at verse one here with me. He starts off, we'll get to it later, but guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And he says this. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. This sacrifice of fools is someone that is just going through the motions. Someone that is doing good Christian things, but is actually not Approaching God, not viewing God the way that they ought to, they're mindlessly going through these religious routines, and that would be good for us this morning to make sure that we look in the mirror and make sure we're not doing that thing. So I'd love for you to read down this way for subpoint A. If we're looking for this low view of God. Subpoint A is look for mindless religious routines. Mindless religious routines. This guy is offering a sacrifice. It says, if you know your Old Testament. Are sacrifices a good thing or a bad thing? They're a good thing, right? You read the book of Leviticus. We've got all these prescriptions for this type of sacrifice and this type of sacrifice and this type of sacrifice. Sacrifices are a good thing in the Old Testament. And so this guy was, in one sense, doing something good, but look what it calls him. It says he's offering a sacrifice of fools. Why? Because he he does not know what he is doing is evil. He's just doing it to do it. You can picture now putting yourself in the sandals of an Old Testament Jew that you would show up to the temple, you show up to the synagogue each week with a sacrifice in hand, right? You would probably sin that week. You're bringing your, your your sin offering, your guilt offering, your maybe you've got a free will offering, a peace offering, whatever the case may be. And every every time you go to church, you've got your animal with you. And you know maybe last week you're bringing one of your bulls to church, but this week you're bringing one of your sheep, or your pigeon dove, or whatever the case may be. It's very common. For you, as you think about, oh, going to church, I'm gonna bring my animal, I'm gonna bring my sacrifice. And again, if someone brought an animal here, uh, an animal, not a pet, but like a sacrifice, and there was a sacrifice that went up on, on stage on, on a Sunday morning, it would, it would make national news. It would freak all of, all of us out and be like, whoa, we just saw death take place on the stage. But again, this was normal every week. I mean, think about the, just the gallons of blood that would you would see every week as you show up to church if you will. And so this guy just showing up to bring a sacrifice, but thinking he's doing a good thing, but it says he's, he's actually doing evil. Again, sacrifices were a good thing, but God does not delight in this mindless, you know, even we'll get to it later, hypocritical type of sacrifice here. You can write down Psalm 51, 16 and 17, Psalm 51 verse 16 and 17. You know this Psalm, I'm sure, Psalm of Confession there from David, But listen to what he says there at the end of Psalm 51. He says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Is God interested in just the mere external act of righteousness? Or is he interested ultimately in the heart that is behind it? This sacrifice of fools. He's just doing a good thing but not properly engaging his heart to understanding who God is and the trepidation and the fear and the reverence and the honor that he deserves. He doesn't have that, and therefore it calls him a fool. It's a good reminder for us this morning to make sure that the good, churchy, religious, Christian rituals and routines that we do are our hearts and our minds actively engaged in what we're doing. Are we just doing it because that's what we do every week? We show up to church, we do our service post. we check a box, we wake up in the morning, we read our Bibles, we go and we pray and we hit all of our prayer requests on our prayer list and that's just what we do and we're used to this habit and we're in this rut of just doing mindless religious routine after religious routine. If you treat church like maybe some of you treat your job just a clock in and a clock out and I just did my due diligence and I'm good and I can go off and do whatever I want for the rest of the week, it says here that that is a big deal you don't understand truly who God is, the God that you're serving, and that's, that's a big deal. Does that mean that doing those good churchy, religious habits that you have, are, is that a bad thing? No, that's not a bad thing. It's good that those things are a habit, but if your mind is disengaged, it's not good. Another one you can write down is Joel 2, Joel 2, 12 and 13. If you know anything about the book of Joel, um, this is a great book. I love, I love the book of Joel. The book of Joel, there's a lot of judgment that goes on. In chapter one, we see this, this locust plague go on that he's gonna say, hey, this is like, gonna be like the day of the Lord. But then what he does also is Joel, as the prophet says, you can repent and God will relent of this disaster. Joel 2, verses 12 and 13. I want you to see this, this rut of religiosity that he's confronting. He says this, this is Joel, but God speaking, of course. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me, he's talking to Israel, return to me, listen to this, with all of your heart. And then he goes on and he says, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Then he says this, rend your hearts and not your garments. What you see there in Joel chapter two is that, yeah, those good things, he, he mentions uh, fasting, he mentions weeping, he mentions mourning, these good acts, rituals, if you will, But he says, I'm interested in the heart. Rend your hearts and not just your garments. Not just the externalities of religious things, but making sure that your heart is engaged in it. The fool in verse one of our text here, he's offering sacrifices, not engaged in what he's doing, not treating God the way that he should. And we see him as being self-deceived. Look back at our text. This is better to draw near to listen than offer sacrifice of fools, and he says this, for they do not know that they're doing evil. They do not know that they're doing evil. He thinks he's doing something good. He thinks he's doing something that is pleasing to God. But in fact, in the process, he's displeasing God. There's this subtle type of hypocrisy going on. Externally good, internally evil. And we see this go on in our text. And this would be something even for us to make sure that we don't see this type of subtle Type of hypocrisy in our lives as well. You can write down subpoint B is mindless hypocrisy. Mindless hypocrisy as well will reveal to us, show us that we've got a lower view of God than we really think we do. Mindless hypocrisy, what do I mean by that? Am I talking about the hypocrisy of you going, calling out this specific sin and then turning around and doing that same sin after you preached against it? That's not necessarily what I'm referring to here. But we see this mindless hypocrisy in the sense of this guy's doing something good on the outside. But ultimately, the Bible calls him a fool, and then it says he's doing evil. So there's this external of good and this internal of evil. Again, you, to describe what that is, we'd probably use the term hypocrisy, that's, so that's why I use it here in this point. It's this not just an Ecclesiastes five point, but this is a Jesus point as well. If you know the Sermon on the Mount, what is Jesus confronting? He confronts hypocrisy. He confronts self-deception, externalities of religion, but ultimately one's heart being far from God. I'd love for you to turn over there to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 here with me this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 specifically. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus confronts externalities, there this, try this external facade of being godly and, and religious and righteous. Look at what he says, Matthew chapter six, verses one to four. Again, the context of this is Jesus. He's preaching this sermon to a bunch of Pharisees who did a lot of good things on the outside, but inwardly were far from God. Matthew six, verse one, Jesus confronts it this way. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven For thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, for they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see this picture of someone trying to impress the crowd and trying to show I am a good godly Christian person on the outside, announcing to the whole crowd, announcing to the synagogues in the streets, look at my righteousness. What Jesus confronts here is this Christianity of of performance, of I do the good things that I do to impress other people. And he says, beware of that type of righteousness, for it's not going to please God. Look at this, verse one, he says, you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven the pharisees were unaware that their righteous deeds were actually super super disgusting and displeasing to god so jesus confrontation here is a, a wake up call for these pharisees externally good internally evil and i think ecclesiastes gives us a very similar reminder and confrontation even this morning to make sure that we're not offering the sacrifice of fools thinking we're doing good external things but in reality displeasing God in the process. You can keep your finger there in Matthew chapter six, but I'd love for you to turn back to Ecclesiastes with me. We'll be back in Matthew six in a moment. Ecclesiastes chapter five, look at the next, the next verse. Verse two gives us another symptom to look for in our lives to make sure that we don't have this low view of God that he confronts. Ecclesiastes five, verse two, it says, be not rash with your mouth. Never let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Next thing he confronts here is this rash, this hasty, this mindless communication and approach to God. What word would we use to describe your approach and your communication to God? You probably use the word, Prayer. Prayer. You write that down for subpoint C. Expecting our lives for a low view of God, looking for mindless prayer as well. This hastiness in one's approach to God, communication with God. It says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. What is he saying? Is he saying, I should not pray? Should I just? Sit there in silence and not say anything to God. Is that what he's talking about? No. He's talking about this understanding of who God is in our prayers. Making sure that we're not just going to God, forgetting how high and lifted up and sacred he is. Not this presumptive type of praying, but this careful, engaged, reverential type of praying. Remembering who God is and who we are. You'll get there in your homework questions, but Isaiah chapter 6, a familiar scene of someone that comes before the presence of God. Isaiah, before the throne room of God, what is his response? When he sees the, the glory and the grandeur of God, he stops and he says, whoa, whoa. This Isn't just, oh, God, what's up? How's it going? Let's just, let's just hang out. Let's just talk. Oh, well, I got a bunch of requests for you. Let me just rattle them off for you. Because we're, we're, we're good. No, it's woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. You are holy. You are big. You are omnipotent. You are powerful. I, I am small. This reminder of who God is and who we are. Therefore, look at, uh, back at verse two. It says, why is this the case? Why should we not be rash in our communication with God here? He says, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. This is this reminder of who he is and who we are. Verse three, he talks about dreams. And again, Ecclesiastes sometimes gets a little confusing, but he talks about For where dreams come with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Drop your eyes down in verse seven. We see this concept of dreams and words again. It says where dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. What he's confronting here is this, this idea of lots of words, this, this unsubstantial type of talk and type of uh, language here. Lots of words and expressions, but there's no substance Nothing substantial to them. It's good for us this morning to make sure that when we go to God in prayer, are we mindfully and carefully talking to Him? It's so easy for us that, you know, we're around church and church people and church prayer meetings and group prayers oftentimes that we can get so comfortable with God and with these words and these phrases that when you start praying, you're just tossing up phrases that you don't even really understand what you're saying. You know, been in group prayers where you're sitting next to someone, you're trying to impress them, and so you start throwing out bigger words than you normally would because you want them to think you're spiritual or or godly or whatever the case may be. In your own prayer time, you just just start rattling off a bunch of prayer requests over and over again, and you start saying things that maybe you don't understand what you're saying, and so God is not interested in just mindless phrasing and and just more words and. Longer time, just for the sake of longer time, he confronts that back in Matthew chapter six. I told you to keep your finger there. If you flip over there, again, Jesus confronts this same type of mindless prayer as well. Matthew chapter six, look at verse five here with me. Confronting this Christianese in our prayer, tossing up words and phrases that we don't truly mean. Matthew chapter six, verse five, he says, when you pray, You must not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. The same issue that we have going up in the verse before with the giving analogy. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, listen to this, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they'll be heard for their many words Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, and he goes into the Lord's Prayer, and where does he start the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread, God. No, look at verse 9. Pray then like this. Where does he start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, you are God. I am not. I'm not going to be hasty to just get into my prayer request. I'm not just going to be hasty to utter a word before God to quote our text in Ecclesiastes 5, but making sure that we truly pause, stop, and reflect on the grandeur and the glory and the gravitas of the God that we're approaching. Just like Isaiah. As he is in that throne room, there's no uh, misunderstanding of who God is. He understands who he is and who God is. And therefore, we ought to as well. Are you actively engaged in your prayer life? Are you just beeline to your prayer requests, stopping to pause to say this right here, what Jesus prescribes: "Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name." I'm going to stop and recognize who You are. It'd be a great thing for you to do. I think this is a really helpful practice. It's even in your prayer, in your prayer times, just thinking and praying over the attributes of God. If you stopped, you started your prayer time with. I'm gonna just stop and I'm gonna praise God for his omniscience. I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna, I'm gonna meditate on that. I'm gonna think about maybe God's holiness and let that now marinate your prayer time and get a proper understanding and a proper relationship to God up here and you down here. Again, to quote our text, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. There's that reminder of who he is and who we are look back at our text, he gives one last symptom of someone that has a low view of God. In Ecclesiastes, he transitions very, very rapidly. I want one topic to the next, but if you look at verse four here with me, we see another symptom of someone with a low view of God. He says this, for when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake for why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? What he confronts here is someone that is hasty in their uh, commitments and their promises to God. And back in the Old Testament, that was uh, much, more, much more common. You've heard of the, these vows that people would make to God. Like a, a free will offering was one of those vows. That I'm gonna vow that I'm gonna give this certain animal to God. Maybe you've heard of these allegiance vows of, you know, I am going to now vow the rest of my life if God is able to deliver me from this battle and I will now do something for God. Maybe you know the story of Jephthah in the book of Judges. And again, not a great story there, but we see someone who makes a vow and says, God, I'm in the midst of battle. If, if you allow me to win this battle, then I will sacrifice anything that walks out of the door of my house. And then you know the story, his daughter walks out and it's just not a great situation. He does pay what he vows but again, just tragic story there. There's this vowing that goes on. The Nazarite vow is another vow as well. The idea here is that when you promise something to God, you should be making sure that you follow through with it. Again, you're probably not, off, you're probably not uh, vowing a free will offering this week or an allegiance offering or uh, maybe no one's taking the Nazarite vow this week, but we make commitments to God all the time. In small groups, it happens. And we need to take those spiritual commitments that we make very seriously. Subpoint D, you can write it down this way, mindless spiritual commitments. Mindless spiritual commitments. There's, there's this warning against this flippant, hasty commitments, failing to follow through with them. Verse four says, when you vow a vow, don't delay in paying for it. He takes that right from Deuteronomy twenty-three twenty-one. Deuteronomy 23, 21, it says, If you vow, do not delay, or you will be guilty of sin. And ultimately, any promise that we make, any vow that we make, any commitment that we make, we as people of God should be people of our word that follow through with the commitments that we do make. James 5, 12 says, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Another one, Psalm 15, verse 4, says that we ought to be people that swear to our own hurt. That when we say something, we follow through in doing it. But specifically, there's this very sacred, special reverence that we should give to these vows, these commitments making before God. He says, it's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Then he goes into this story of verse 6. He says, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. It would You'd make a promise, one of those free will offerings maybe, and you say, I am going to, uh, I'm going to vow my, my best unblemished sheep, and I'm going, to, I'm going to have this sheep, and I'm going to sacrifice it, and the messenger would show up to your house and say, all right, here to collect your, your sheep that you promised. You said it was going to be unblemished. You said it was going to be this big and this old and everything like that. Where's your commitment? And it says that don't be this person that when the messenger shows up, you just say, oh, no, no, no! It was a mistake. I, I didn't mean sheep. I actually meant I meant turtle dove. Actually, that's a lot cheaper. Or actually, no, no, no. Me, I, that wasn't me. That was my neighbor. I, I didn't make that commitment. And there's this breaking of a promise, this breaking of a vow that goes on. And he says, "You got to be careful with that." Again, because we're not maybe in that setting specifically, we need to take very seriously our vows that we make before God. In the sense of these commitments, they show up in times like small groups, when I say, man, I am going to, I, I, I'm done uh, forgetting to read my Bible every day, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to commit that this is going to be something, this year, this year is going to be my DBR year, and I'm actually going to do it. You make these commitments, and then don't follow through with them. These commitments before God, how seriously are you taking them? These goals maybe that you're setting in a small group setting before God, Do you really mean them or these hasty commitments that "Ah, I'm just going to delay in paying it or I'm not going to pay it at all? These four symptoms are really helpful for us to look into our lives to make sure that we're not mindlessly going through the motions. We're not just hearing good sermons on Sunday morning. We're taking classes across the street. We're reading theological books. You're reading your Bible every day and you're filling your mind with knowledge but then mindlessly going through the motions, he confronts what that, or he 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 shows you if that is truly you with these four symptoms here in Ecclesiastes chapter five. But if you are someone that has Google and you you know you you have a sickness or you start to feel something or you have a rash, you know all of the self-proclaimed doctors in the room, you go on WebMD. You go on Mayo Clinic, you type in your rash or your dizziness or whatever on Google, and you go and you have now diagnosed yourself with this like fatal disease after going on WebMD. Everyone has been there, a bunch of hypochondriacs you know, in the room. And so you look at all these symptoms and you're like, boom, 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 boom. Uh-oh, that's me. Like this, I've got this terrible, terrible disease. Every time you read the symptoms, before closing the browser, what do you do? You scroll down to the bottom where it says treatments, right? You scroll down to the treatments and you look, is this just an ibuprofen situation or is this like a, like a life-altering surgery situation? You always go straight from the symptoms to the treatments. That's exactly where Ecclesiastes 5 goes, where he sandwiches these treatments at the top of the page and at the bottom of the page, and he puts the symptoms in the middle. So let's look back at the treatments. If you go, look your eyes back at the top of this passage to verse 1. He's got our symptom, or our, rather, our treatment at the top. It's the reverse of WebMD. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse one, he says this, says the treatment. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And he says this, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice to fools. Drop your eyes down to verse seven, the very end, the punchline The thesis of this, he says, God is the one you must fear. The solution, the treatment that the preacher of Ecclesiastes provides for us is to say, you should view God highly. Write it down that way for point number two. Cultivate a high view of God. Cultivate a high view of God. If you see any, all, all four, one of four, any mix of these symptoms, Point number two, cultivate a high view of God instead. The treatment is to view God the way that he truly is. Ultimately, good theology is the solution, is the treatment that he gives. A high view of God. And if that doesn't sound familiar to you, then maybe you can flip over your bulletin to the opposite side and you look at those eight distinctives. And number three on the eight distinctives of Compass Bible Church is this, that we seek to maintain a high view of God. We seek to maintain a high view of God. And I know that is true in this pulpit. I know that is true in the sub-ministries that you're part of. I know that is true in all the teaching that goes on here at this campus. And I know it's true of the teaching that goes on at Compass Bible Church Tustin and Huntington Beach and Treasure Valley and Hill Country in North Texas, that we seek to maintain a high view of God. But how is that showing up in our everyday lives? I don't know if you've been on the website recently, onto the eight distinctives page, but every one of the eight distinctives has an explanation, has a description. I want to read the description for you on the website. Distinctive number three, we seek to maintain a high view of God. This is what it says. It says, in a day when many have attempted to reduce God to be their spiritual therapist, it's important for us to remember that God, our creator, is the highly exalted, transcendent king of all things, and we cannot afford to think of God as less than he really is, and we dare not respond to him as merely our comfortable friend and fail to worship him as our sovereign Lord. That is true from the ministries that go on here at Compass Bible Church. But it's good for us this morning to ask ourselves the question, is that true in our lives, our individual lives? Is that true in your family life? Is that true in your marriage that you seek to maintain that high view of God and it shows up in the way that you talk, in the way that you live? Again, point number one is these symptoms that really expose that your theology is not as high as maybe you would like to think that it is. Point number two says the solution of that is to elevate that theology of God even higher and to then go live that out in real life. Again, Christianity is not just a behavioral improvement. I hope you don't think that. It's just you come to church, you get some self-help, and you know, I know how to be a better husband now. I know how to you know uh, be a better uh, worker employee at my job or be a better mom or be a better dad christianity is not just behavioral improvement so that you're just a better person christianity is saying i understand who god is who i am and now my job is to worship him to be as romans 12 says a living sacrifice to him my life is now devoted to his worship i said to cultivate a high view of god Cultivate is this idea of you're working for. it. It is something that you're actively engaged in doing more and more. If you settle for the view of God that you have, it will atrophy away. If you're not actively uh, 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 equipping and actively cultivating a higher and higher view of. If you're broken an arm or a leg or something like that, you got one arm in a cast and one arm that you're actively you know, doing all of life with and you're using one arm, and you're keeping it strong, and then you've got another arm in a cast for X number of weeks, and you take that cast off after, you know, your bone is better, you know, it's healed or whatever. You look at your two arms. You've got one big arm and one small arm, one atrophied and one mature. The one that is mature is mature only because you've been using it all the time. The one that is atrophied is immature and small because you haven't been using it. So you're either seeking and disciplining this view of God in your life or it's atrophy in a way. So what should we do to elevate this view? Well, verse 1 gives us a very clear call, a very clear command for our lives. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God, being very cautious as you enter the temple, in this case, this holy place where God was. And you're not showing up to the temple every week, but you are showing up to church where God talks in the New Testament about the church being God's house. And so therefore, the reverence that you show up to church with should really be a priority of your life. Subpoint A, you can write it down this way. You need to treat God's house with reverence. Treat God's house with reverence to guard your steps when you enter God's house, recognizing your relationship to him. Moses has that when he shows up in the presence of God in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. What's Immediately, what, he's supposed to, what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to take his shoes off because where he's standing is holy ground. The church is God's house. It is special to God. It should be special to us. 1 Timothy 3, uh, 15. 1 Timothy three, fifteen. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, if I delay, you may know, because of this letter, you may now know how you ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God, which is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. What type of special reverential respect you treat God's house with? Getting meet for church in a business park, but how much reverence do you treat this place with? I'm not talking about necessarily picking up trash on your way out, making sure you throw your communion cup away so the ushers don't have to do it. That's not what I'm talking about. But do you treat God's house with reverence because I'm entering God's house? There's nothing special about the drywall or the, you know, the, 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 the chairs that you're sitting on. It's not special thread that is specially sacredly holy and it's gonna make you more righteous to sit on it or the carpet is specially dedicated or whatever the case may be. But what you are doing is when you come gather with the people of God and the, gather with the saints and sing these songs together and sit under the teaching of God's word, it is a very special thing that you do. So therefore, how do you approach your time at church? Think right now about your drive to church. What does that look like? For some of you, it looks like stressed, running late, yelling at your kids on your drive to church, upset at your spouse because they made you late. And you walk into this room right here with your heart pumping and you're upset and you're stressed and you've got unconfessed sin in your life. Ecclesiastes 5 says, guard your steps as you enter the house of God being very careful in my preparation as I even drive to church, as I pull into the parking lot, preparing my heart, readying my heart to hear from God's word, to correct my low view of him and to give me a high view of him, a mindfulness now at church, not a mindlessness that we saw in point number one, but a mindfulness as we listen to God. Look at where he goes next. He says, to draw near, to listen. Listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. To draw near to listen. One of the reasons that you come even to church on Sunday morning is to listen to God in a very real way. We ought to listen to God very reverentially as well. Subpoint B can write down this way, listen to God reverentially. Listen to God reverentially. To draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. The drawing near is this idea of this anticipation, this, pre- this, this prepared walking into. The way that you listen, it really matters. You can write down um, James 1, uh, 22 through 25. James 1, 22 through 25. The famous passage about the hearer and the doer. The one who hears God's word, looks at it like a mirror, and then walks away, forgets what he was once like, and goes and he lives like the rest of the world. But then there's the guy that looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and it says, perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. It says he will be blessed in his doing. Listening well should result in active obedience as well. How well do you listen to sermons at church? How well do you listen to God's word as you open it up? You start your day off with God's word. How well are you listening? Are you listening as though it is God revealing himself to you through his word? The way that you listen really matters. I don't have a chapter or verse for you on this. About sermon notes. A lot of you take great sermon notes. It's a hallmark of, I think, of Columbus Bible Church. Maybe distinctive number nine. I don't know. Good sermon notes. Which is great. That's an awesome thing. Think about why do you take sermon notes? Maybe you just do it because you've done it like a thousand times and you just show up and you just did it again. You didn't even think about it. You brought your iPad or your laptop. You grabbed a pen on your way in. Why do you take sermon notes? What does it do? It engages your mind in listening well. So that when you're done with the sermon, and you've done this before, you've heard a sermon and completely forgot, right? You've forgotten about sermons. You can can say, you've forgotten about sermons before. When you have notes, you forget less. You have something to go back to. You have something to refresh your memory on Wednesday morning when you're going to go to your small group Wednesday night. You're like, I forgot even what the sermon was. You bring your notes back up. You say, oh, wow, I listened well on Sunday morning, and now I can refresh myself because I engaged my mind while I listened. It's helping me remember so I can refer back to it later. Coming with attentiveness and preparation even into the times that you listen to God through his word. Really the kicker of this text is, like I said in verse 7, he wraps it all up into this one idea of the fear of God. Look back at verse 7. It says, he, after all of this, this person that's mindlessly going through the motions, he says, but God is the one you must fear. If God is God and we are not, we should treat him with that sense of fear and as a result, obedience of him. Sub point C, reverentially fear and obey God. Reverentially fear and obey God. To fear God to have this sense, this awe of his authority resulting in this reverential submission to him, to his command, to his will in your life. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, the end of the book, he says this, for the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. One of the scariest verses in the Bible right there. Our response to God is fear and obedience. And it says, for that is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man. Why? Because God's gonna bring every deed into judgment. If you sense God's authority, then that will affect the way that you serve. Did you sign up to serve at Camp Compass this week? That's great. If this is the view that you have of God, how well and excited and ambitious are you gonna serve this week at Camp Compass? Are you just gonna come in and check the box like you always do? No, God is God. I get to serve him in a very real way. I cannot wait to do that. When you're in temptation this week and this is the God that you think about, this is the God with whom you displease with your sin and you think he is God, he is in control, he is the authority. Wow, that makes this temptation look a lot less attractive. This sin looks a lot less enticing because I know this is the God with whom I'm displeasing if I agree to this sin here. We need to truly view God the way that he has revealed himself in his word And therefore, now going out and living accordingly. If you're on social media, I'm sure you've seen this trend before. It's not a trend that I think is going away anytime soon. A lot of social media trends have a shelf life of two weeks. But this social media trend, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And that is the trend of how many ads you see on social media. Is it just all over the place? YouTube, Instagram. I'm not talking about the banners, like the the pop-ups and that kind of thing. I'm talking about the ads within the content. You're watching a YouTube video and then there's like a pause for 30 seconds for them to promote this brand or whatever. And they give you a promo code to save 10% off of their, you know, thousand dollar item that they want you to buy or whatever the case may be. Ads are all over the place. And you as the consumer probably don't love ads, but ads are beneficial to the content creator. It's beneficial to the company. They get some marketing, the content creator, they get some money for their channel or whatever the case may be. But as a consumer, you probably hate ads because that's as soon as the content switches to feeling very forced and scripted, you could tell they're reading their teleprompter. You can tell it's all fake. You're probably like, oh, it's just such a money grab. I remember back in the day when it wasn't this way. I remember when YouTube was pure or whatever the case may be. You're like, man, I just, I, I hate how many ads I see every day. And it's all over the place. You guys are just sellouts. You're just trying to make a buck. Like, this is just so insincere, disingenuous What do the companies do when they pay for ads? They pay for marketing. They pay for press. They pay for this person to give praise, right? You view it as disingenuous, but they're paid to give praise, to give worship to this company. They give this praise because they get something out of it. And the company doesn't really care if that person really believes it. What they care about is, do they they recite the script the way They should have. That's the type of worship. That's the type of praise that Ecclesiastes chapter 5 confronts. To say, are you just doing it? Are you just reading off a teleprompter and just doing what you're supposed to do? Or is it really, truly? Because you understand who God is and you worship him as though he is worthy of that worship. He is worthy of that obedience. Jesus calls it out, Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. He says, these people, they honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. And it says, in vain do they worship me. A disingenuous, a self-serving type of worship doesn't go very far in God's book. But a genuine, an authentic, a heart and mind engaged in what I'm doing type of obedience and fear and worship of God is what he is interested in. And that is the type of worship that he is worthy of because he is God. And as verse two says, he's in heaven and we are on earth. And therefore, as a result, we need to now take that good theology and go put it into practice in our everyday lives so that it's not just head knowledge, it's not just me going through the motions mindlessly, but it's me worshiping the creator of the universe because he has saved me from my sin. And now I get to be a slave, a servant of him for the rest of my life and for all of eternity. Let's go to that God right now in prayer as we continue to worship him in a couple moments. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for loving and caring for us so much. God, that you would reveal who you really are. God, and again, we understand that your word, it only gives us really a glimpse of your glory and your majesty but God, we are thankful to know you through your word. And God, we don't just want to know you in an intellectual type of way, in an academic, merely theological type of way. But God, we want to then take that theology, take that, uh, th- those good things that we know about you through your word, and we want to now go do those in real life. God, may the theology that we hear from your word may the theology that we intake from reading good books, may the theology that we listen to on the weekend or through lectures. God may this not just be knowledge but may it be application for our lives. the God that when people look at us that they would see that we have a high view of you, not a low view, a mindless check in the box type of view. but we view you as the God of the universe because that's truly who you are. God we repent of this low view and we ask that you would help us. God, cultivate a higher and higher view of you each and every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.